With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real. You're already working hard to earn your money. But how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Sunday, July 25th. And if you did not hear yesterday's show, listen to that first, because we are in a two-part conversation with the legendary Michael Lewis. His new book is called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. And yesterday, we kind of got into some of the characters of the book. In this part of our interview, we are going to talk about how we change the incentives going forward. And then we get into something that is really kind of neat about how Wall Street had an interesting part of this. So you got to listen all the way through. Here is the second part of our interview with Michael Lewis. Is there something about these three characters, about the way they think, that connects them, that makes them out of step with these political appointees, like they're, they're sort of insider outsider types, but they have, they do think in a way that is like the, the curiosity and the, what if they're really willing to look at the absolute worst case scenario and go right there. Are these three completely out of step with everyone else that they're dealing with? Or are there lots of people like the three characters out there? I don't know how many people there are like the three characters, but they're certainly out of step with their institutional environment. And in this way, one, they all have a bias towards action. So they, they would rather commit the sin of commission rather than the sin of omission. They're incapable of, psychologically incapable of when they see a problem sweeping it under a rug, that they attack it. They attack it for a reason because they're in this field of disease management. If you don't attack it, people die. Mm. Um, but they're all at heart, even though only two of the three of them are, in fact, doctors. And they're doctors who take a very personal view of their patient, very personal, even when the patient is a society. They're able to see past numbers to actual human souls. And they're all completely nervy, like very brave, and don't live in a space where they're they're calculating like, the risks to themselves of doing the things they're doing. They sort of just like put that to one side. 
And it seems to me also that uh, it's sort of like the world of Wall Street regulation, that the incentives are screwed up. And so the incentives are just not aligning to bring the people in that we need, the kinds of people in to prevent this the next time. So what are the incentives in this system, this medical industrial complex, and, and how do we change the incentives? I think if you ask me what this book is for, it's to change the incentives. That, that, and that's right. If you look at what happened during the pandemic at the level of the local health officer, there was selective pressure to drive out the brave ones. Mm. You know, among the, I give you a little example. Sarah Cody, who is the local health officer for Santa Clara County, was ahead of the governor. In fact, the governor used her as sort of like, you know, cannon fodder to get out and, and close down the county early when she discovered disease in the county. And it was very, we, it, that was one of the first cases in the country. She saved a lot of lives, a lot of lives. I mean, you want, the point of comparison is New York City. The virus arrives in the places at the same time, but, but Sarah Cody is a week or 10 days ahead of New York City. And, and look what happens there, look what happens here. She's stuck in her job. There are a dozen Sarah Cody's, they got driven out of their jobs. And those are the people who you need doing the jobs. So what's left are the people who didn't put up a fight, right? The people who like kind of didn't do the job in the way it needed to be done. It needs a bright light shined on this space in society. People need to be educated about what the job is and what affects the behavior the person has on human life. And they need to be resourced and resourced, not just with money, but, but also with political and social capital. That would be the biggest reason I wrote the book is that communities internalize the message. It gets in the bloodstream and politicians stand up behind these local health officers rather than like, throw them under the bus. And also, obviously, these political appointees need to be staff positions, as you said, well resourced. The turnover seems to also create so many problems that we like we miss things in the turnover of all these political appointees. Right. And, and so like, it, it's crazy. So it's a great story. Carter Mesher, who's in the Bush White House and is just reinvented pandemic planning in a way that's going to have profound effects for the whole world, has his computers and his all his files. Like the day after the inauguration, all these people rush in, take all his hard drives, take his all his files, even though he's staying over into the Obama administration, they disappear forever. The only knowledge that's and they do this with every political appointee, that all the knowledge that he had all the knowledge he created, all that's left of it in the White House is whatever's in his head. And, and when he goes, it's gone. The lack of continuity, we pay a horrible price for. And like the risk is so huge. And so we're again, we're asking these these unicorns on the ground to save us because there is no cohesive strategy. I wonder how you feel when you um, wake up this morning. So we're talking on Friday and you say, oh, we don't have to wear masks anymore because that's what the CDC just said. You just went through this, you know, oh. year and a half. Like, how do you feel about that? I don't know. I, I, I make a distinction between the people at the CDC and the system they operate and incentives. And I don't think the kind of person who goes to work at the CDC is anything but a good person trying their best in a broken system. It feels to me uh, like they've been so discredited that even when they say something like this, that it's everybody was cheering, right? That in the back of everybody's mind, there's this doubt uh, that actually they know what they're talking about. And that's such a shame. Mm. Had you read uh, the John Barry, The Great Influenza before you had started this? I read it in the beginning because of it, because it was it kind of got me going. I mean, it yeah. got the, 
So I, I had to read it and I, I, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, it was a little scary. I read it very early in the pandemic. My friend who's a big hedge fund guy, he's like, do you want to see what's going to happen? Read this book. And he sent it to me and I was freaking out. I mean, I really was. I thought it was so scary in many ways. And I'm going to give you one other book that you might actually find interesting called uh, The Pull of the Stars. It's a novel by Emma Donahue, and she's an Irish American author. She happened to write this book Prior to this pandemic, it takes place in a Dublin maternity ward amid the great flu of 1918. And I learned from this book that the meaning of influenza comes from the Italian superstition that the stars influence health. In other words, blame it on the stars. It connotes this randomness to how these things begin. And I would like you to sort of help me understand how we can look at the randomness of this pandemic, who it affects, who lives, who dies, and how we can try to make sense of this the next time around. Well, we're dealing with an essential random process, right? Evolution. It's random mutation and natural selection, but before a virus. And we're playing Russian roulette with this random process because we have this broken relationship with nature that is encouraging and making it easier for pathogens to jump from other species into us, uh, mutate in a way that, uh, that they can actually live inside of us and, and give us disease. And then once they get inside of us, mutate in ways that become even more lethal. That's not necessarily where they're going to go. But if you, if you, if you pull the arm of the slot machine enough times, you're going to come up with the jackpot eventually. I, I think we ought to think of it that way, that we're managing this process where the best thing we can do is minimize the pulls of the slot machine because you can't really guess where the process is going to go. Can I ask you a quick question about Wall Street and the reaction to this whole pandemic in that it felt like the traders were ahead of the health officials understanding how bad it would get and how quickly we would recover. Do you have any comment about like the ability of some of these folks to really actually be ahead of where we were as a society? You know, it's the first time I've heard anybody say that and it's true. So I don't have, I don't have anything to add to that. It's, it's absolutely true that you could probably look after, especially after the February 23rd announcement from the CDC, when the market collapsed and then kind of all of a sudden recovered, when the, you get the feeling that there was this intelligent animal out there making sense independently of the pandemic without much help from the CDC. You, it's, that's funny you say this. I think that's right. And the truth is that, never mind Wall Street, if you'd given Charity Dean a portfolio to manage, she would have made those calls. All right, go check out Michael Lewis and everything he writes, but specifically this most recent book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story, and uh, let us know what you think. I think this is uh, very fascinating. I learned a lot reading this book. If you've got a question, a comment, a uh, maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about something going on in your personal financial life, just send us an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com. Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. You can always go to the website, jillonmoney.com. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And if something is going on in your life, you can always hit the contact button. Try to put your hands metaphorically on someone's back today. And don't forget, grit, growth, grace. It's Sunday. I'm going to put gratitude in there. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 